I'm really excited. I love this time of year. I love Christmas. I actually love decorating for Christmas. I'm the one who, who does that, though this year the kids were wanting me to do that November 5th or 4th, and I was tired. I was like, no. But then they had the whole week of Thanksgiving off, so I got to do it. Even as a child, I was there helping my mom decorate everything. And one of the things I like about Christmas and decorating is it's this cascading effect when you come and you bring the tree down or you go buy a tree from the lot and you bring it into your house, you suddenly have to move stuff around. Nobody has, at least not in this city, their tree spot that's just there available, filled blank, just whenever we're ready, we're gonna put our 12-foot tree right there. No, instead, what happens is you buy the tree, you bring it into your house, and you're like, oh shoot, I gotta move the chair, and it's a cascading effect. You gotta move the, if you move the chair, then you have to move a little table, then you have to move that little chair to somewhere else, and that pushes a plant out or something like that. This is what's happening in our house. Then we have to move the plants. Now we finally found the spots where the plants can be to where they don't die. But overall, we're just moving stuff. I actually filled three tubs of things that have to be taken away so that we can bring stuff in. It's absurd, right? But that's really the the reality of this Christmas season is you rearrange your whole life to make space, to make room for for the coming of gifts and seasons and festivities and nice thoughts and all of those things. But Advent is, is a deeper reality than that. It's a season of a whole hope recalibration. So throughout the year, we develop these other hopes and dreams and aspirations, and we think this will solve the world. If we could just get this right, that'll be really great. One of my favorite things in the recent years is, y'all remember the Enneagram? Yeah, and we really thought that would solve us <laughs> at a deep soul level. Like, I know my number, and now me and my friends, we're going to be totally great. I'm going to like be fully alive. And then COVID happened, and I haven't heard anyone tell me their number since COVID. It's as if we realize being a four-rooted or what, a four-winged seven, whatever. I don't know. I've now forgotten the lingo. It's as if that actually didn't solve us. And, and COVID was kind of a re, recalibration of our hope for an extended season. Advent is a time where we recalibrate at a really deep heart level, what is it that I hope in? And the, the, the Christian calendar follows that. This is the beginning of the calendar. This is the beginning of the year. And it starts with, what is it that I actually trust in or faith? What do I have faith in? What do I hope in? Uh, where do I actually receive joy or merriment? Uh, I love that joy and merry are actually the same word, especially if you're a French speaker. You know that? No. Uh, no French speakers. Got it. I'll cut that part. Uh, <laughs> this is the time where we get to think, what is it that... I actually truly love. Through summers, through vacations, through work drama, school drama, errands, politics, little by little, day by day, our our hopes shift away from Christ here with us, near to us, towards all of these other things. But then Advent is when we actually make room and we rearrange the furniture of our lives around the promised child in a manger, in in a shack, born 2,000 years ago. It's, when, it's the time where we, we dive deep into the griefs and the misplaced hopes. And we realize, oh, that's, 
that's not the same as a king who died for me and rose again and created a whole new kingdom that I get to come into, a kingdom of peace and joy. It's a time for us to re-understand a savior who's gonna return one day and make every sad thing untrue. Uh, Perhaps I think the best meaning of Advent is this line from a classic hymn that we sing, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room. And the, the, the idea of that song is, and that line is, is the fact that we have to somehow receive the king coming. That there is, a, there is an aspect of your life where you might be resistant to a, a once and for all, always king, and you actually have to receive it. You have to receive this king and you have to prepare room for him inside of your life. And so I want you to think about that to really process. Uh, this, is, this is my chat for all of you adults plus June. Sweet June over there. June really needs to hear this. I actually wrote this just for her. Which is, what are you doing with Jesus in this season? Like This is the most important thing about you right now. It's not what you're gonna buy or how much you're gonna overspend or how to get ready for a diet in a few weeks. The main thing happening in your life is what am I doing with Jesus? It's actually the most important thing about you. What you're believing about Jesus, what you're doing in obedience to the ways of Jesus, what you're receiving from Jesus, what you're trusting in, how you're receiving his love, all of those things are by far It's not even close. It is the most important thing about you in this moment, in this time. And so today I'm going to read a passage of prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is the highest level of Hebrew literature. It It just is. It's a masterpiece. And so I'm gonna do the nerdy thing that I actually don't like to do, but I'm gonna tell you what these Hebrew words sound like because it's, it's just masterful, it's just really great. And we're all here, not just to see cute babies dressed as sheep, but also to be nerds, right? That's why you all came this morning. The sugar is hot, we'll do all of that thing. And then I think what we'll see through this passage of Isaiah is what it means to actually prepare room in your life for the coming king, for the promised child. And maybe at the end of this holiday season, you will actually come back to us and your whole life will be rearranged kind of once and for all on the singular goodness of Jesus. Uh, And so we're gonna start with these words from Isaiah. We're starting in Isaiah chapter eight, verse 19. And this is is what it says. Uh, When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instructions and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light, or sorry, they have no light of dawn. You're like, this is not a Christmas passage. (laughs) You're like, Brad pulled up the wrong verse, right? No, this is on purpose. He says this in verse 21, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and they will curse their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and the fear and and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. 
Then verse nine, it says, or chapter nine, verse one, it says, nevertheless, there will be no gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtile, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. It says, the people walking in darkness will have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoiced at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. You really didn't know that this was the context for this next verse. But you've heard this verse many times, but that's the con- that's dark, right? Then there's some like hopefulness there. But then there's this verse that you do know for sure, Verse six, it says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The passion or the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That is God's word. So this passage definitely starts with darkness. The, the, the context of this whole, this whole bit. Uh, Isaiah is a weird book. It's not a chronological order that we would really love as Western people, but it's a bunch of little bits from a different times and different eras, different things happening. And what, what this is talking to and speaking to is a hope for a nation that is captured, that is exiled, that is destitute, that's on the outside looking in. Uh, Isaiah says earlier in this book, he's like, woe is me because I'm a person of unclean lips and a nation of unclean lips and a world of unclean lips. He's saying, woe to me, the world is falling apart because everybody's a liar and so am I. I love it, you know? I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on the darkness because we're all really well acquainted with the darkness. We know that it's out there. But one of the things I want you to notice though, and what I want you to always notice is that the Bible is just super real. The Bible tells us this is what the world is actually like. Uh, it's no, no fairy tales or magic. Last night we were at the Century City Mall where they were singing all of these funny songs that were like Christian adaptations into fun, wonderful things. And it was all trying to get us, you know, get this whole culture whipped up into some fancy thoughts. The Bible actually says, no, no, there's darkness it's really hard. We're all included. He describes this, this whole world that's, and this whole place that's just consulting different mediums and spirits and whispering and all of these different things. He's describing in chapter eight how people are filled with distress and hunger. They're starving. All they see is death, decay, destruction. It's overwhelming. It's haunting, right? And you know that kind of feeling, 
where people are just looking to all sorts of weird, strange things, where you're looking to all sorts of weird and strange things. And eventually, this passage says, you're going to get tired of it. The people will get tired of it, and they will curse their God, and they will curse their king. Uh, eventually what will happen is the things that you worship, the things that you put your hope in, you're gonna be so frustrated with them, you are gonna curse them. You're gonna curse your politicians that you voted for. You're gonna curse the company that you thought would solve your life when you got hired there. You are going to curse your own children, your own mortgage, your own house. Like you will curse the things that you placed your hope in. And it says, then they will turn their faces to the ground and they will be in deep distress, despair, fear. Like there's, a, there's an anxiety that's there. But it's not just a world out there that's really messed up, right? There's a world inside that's pretty messed up too. Uh, the, a wilderness of soul. Oh, we long to see life, but we're filled with rage instead. We long to taste peace in our relationships, but instead we're distressed in all of our relationships. Uh, we long for satisfaction, to be like at peace, but instead we're really hungry and famished. It is darkness, and it feels like no one is ever going to help us. None of the things that we've tried to do will help us. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, she's uh, quite the writer. She probably wrote the best book on Advent. It's, uh, it's purple, and it's actually called... Advent begins in darkness, it's really great. But this is her quote from the book. She says, Advent says no to sentimentalized Christmas cheer. Instead, it invites us to name our sorrows, lament our unfulfilled longings, pay attention to the pain of waiting in the wilderness, all with quiet hope. Advent begins, she says, in the dark. Yeah. There's some words that the writer of Hebrews or of Isaiah in Hebrew, uses to, to get us into this mindset of darkness. The word distressed is musak. Sounds dark, like something that maybe a bad guy in Lord of the Rings would say. But that's distressed, musak. Or fear, sukkah. Or muap, which is gloom. And these are the words that are getting repeated over and over again. So if you were to listen to this, you would hear these harsh, sad, distorted kind of words that do not sound lovely, do not sound wonderful at all. A land of, of gloom and wilderness. But perhaps the, like, the best word in all of Hebrew comes next. This word that we get translate uh, simply nevertheless is perhaps the greatest word. After hearing of these harsh things, muap, sukkah, uh, mus, uh, sukkah, musak, all of this, all of a sudden we hear this word, ulam, which is a soft, gentle word. It's like a, a leaf falling from a tree and it lands on the grass. And it means, nevertheless, yes, the world is dark, it's sad, it's distressed, you are distressed, you are filled with fear, you are cursing all of the things that you've tried to worship, nevertheless. Nevertheless, even when things seem darker than night, nevertheless, it's this word that's used throughout the whole Bible to tell us, yes, the world is headed this way, but God, but God is going to do something in spite of that, with that, 
using all of the suffering and distress, something great will come. Nevertheless, God will do something. It's a word that Joseph uses when his uh, brothers are there and he's now basically the king of Egypt running everything, but he spent a, a whole era of his life in prison and falsely accused and in pits and his brothers betrayed him. And then his brothers are there. And this is what he says. He says to them, you meant it for evil, he says to his brothers. Nevertheless, Ulam, God meant it for good. And that's like kind of core to all Christian theology is that there is suffering and darkness and distress in this world, even inside of you. Nevertheless, God will turn it into something wonderful. You're in the wilderness of gloom, world of gloom, all of those things, nevertheless. You're weak, you're frail, nevertheless. Maybe you got yourself into a bad situation. Nobody did anything to you. It's, it's, it's you, nevertheless. And it says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. I guess it's quite the promise. It's not, nevertheless, you're gonna be less distressed. Nevertheless, you're gonna be less depressed. Nevertheless, you're going to be less uh, gloomy. He's saying, no, no, no. That's the state of things. Nevertheless, there will be no gloom for those who are in distress. Pretty powerful to me. This soft word comes. uh, Another soft word. In verse 2, it says, The people walked in darkness, and they have seen a great light. This light is or. Kind of like, you know, iron ore. That's how I was taught to say it. But this is a soft word, or it's the same word that was in the beginning of all creation. The first thing God creates is light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he spoke to the, to the light, let there be light, or. This isn't a new thing that God has been doing. God's always been creating light and darkness. But here it's, it's like the heart of God's work. He's making and he's bringing light to this distress. We're all walking in darkness, but behold, we've now seen a great light. What profound beauty and truth there is for just that alone, for any of us. There will be no more mourning for those who are grieving. Like there is a time coming, a moment that exists in which there will be no more grieving There will be no more gloom for those who are depressed, no more gloom for those who are anxious, no more gloom for those who are just draping themselves in anger. There will be no more fear, no more distress. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. There will be light. Those living in the land of darkness will see a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nations and you've increased their joy. So I I think that you should understand that there is a reality to the heart of God for you, for the world, in which he removes all distress, all fear, all gloom forever. It's not, ah, is God trying to make the world a better place? 
There's lots of people trying to make the world a better place. Really great NGOs, really great nonprofits, really great activist groups. There's even really great you know, foreign affairs officers and ambassadors and all of these people and companies. There's some companies trying to make the world a better place. Even some hospitals trying to make the world a better place. God is saying, my whole passion, desire, zeal, my work with this world, with this universe is to make it to where darkness will be no more. Just light. And that's why we put lights up. That's why we see the twinkly twinklies. Like it's all about that. Wow, how quiet you guys are. That's a really impressive. Sarah said it would be a really big distraction, but I made it a big distraction. So then what is the basis for all of this hope? Like uh, we've had lots of good speeches. You've heard good speeches before where they say, hey, hope and change, it's coming. That was like 20 years ago. Shockingly sad. Uh, Every so often somebody comes with a compelling speech to tell us that hope is something that we can rely on. But then after that, you're like, but what is that hope? Like, what is it exactly that I can trust and put confidence in. It says, uh, he, he builds it up really well here. It's like, it's gonna be like when the warriors rejoice over dividing the plunder. It's gonna be like the yoke that burdens you and the bar across your shoulders, the rod of your oppressor being taken away. This is written to people who were carried with rods across their shoulders through the desert to this other nation, this other city, where they were just gonna be cultural servants to it. Uh, they, were, they took all the artists, all the philosophers, all the writers, all the thinkers, and they took them so that they would work under the, this rod and this oppression to perform and create good art and culture for them. That's how the Babylonians were super unique. They didn't bring slaves into them to do manual labor. They brought slaves to them to create beautiful gardens and songs and poems. Not that unlike a city that we live in that calls people here, puts yokes and rods on them and says, you'll work for me. But so, he's described, so this is a people that knew that really well. He's saying, this is the hope. The rod's gonna be removed. It's gonna be really, really great. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment that's been rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Basically, all the suffering, all the scars, it's all gonna be burned up into the fire. And you should be asking, how? How is that gonna happen? How is the oppression gonna end? How's the gloom gonna end? How's the darkness gonna end? And that's where we get one of our favorite Christmassy lines. Well, because... To us, a child is going to be born. A son's going to be given. This great, miraculous incarnation, God here, a son, a child, a baby. That's pretty wild to me. (laughs) Definitely not time. Uh, They're like, it's time. But so far, you only have bad news. Here's the good news. (laughs) This child's going to be born. The government's going to be on his shoulders. And he's going to have this name, this identity, this reality that he lives in all the time. 
It's who he will be. This baby, this baby born, will be the wonderful counselor, the, the wise sage who understands. It'll be mighty God. This is outlandish. This isn't a king that's coming or a good guy or a good lady or a smart person. It's going to be the mighty God. This child born will be a mighty God, will be an everlasting father, nurturing, caring, always forever, not caring for you for a little bit and then abandoning you and going somewhere else, not uh, swooping in and being a father figure to you for a few months or a few years and then you leave. No, a father who will be with you always, nurturing, caring for, seeing you. This child will also be the prince of peace. That The thing that he rules over constantly will be peace, human flourishing, thriving. Of the greatness of his government, like his rule and his reign and of his peace, the vastness of this peace, just the sheer stretching of it and the rule and the reign of this child that's born, there will be no end like extending forever and for always. There's no time in which his term ends. It's just always, and it touches everything. And it says, and he will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, and he will establish it. So this baby is going to make a kingdom, and then he's also gonna uphold it. He's not gonna uphold it with, war, with uh, weapons and self-defense, or any of those things, he's gonna uphold it with justice and righteousness. When? From that time and forevermore. Always. So he's gonna start and it's gonna be forever. The zeal of the Lord, the passion of the Lord will accomplish this by the sheer desire of God because it's what he wants. God is going to get what he wants and this is what it's gonna be. This baby born. What ends the war, what breaks the curse of sin and death and distress and anguish? A child, God, born into this world. It's not some technology or some new idea. It's not a new pickup truck that's with weird angles that's bulletproof. Somebody needs to ask the question of Elon Musk, why is your pickup truck bulletproof? Like, who is that being made for? This $80,000 truck is not being driven around neighborhoods where you need it to be bulletproof. It's like he's expecting the world to end with his robots. Anyway... That's not gonna solve the world. It's not some new idea, new program, new insight that you can gain. It's a child born. Hope arrives in the form of the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. And so I, I ask you to recalibrate your hope on not just the idea of the birth of Jesus, but the reality of his birth. Uh, there's not a there's not a serious scholar in the world. And by serious, I just mean there's always cuckoo people that have YouTube channels. But like actual went to academia, have written journals where other people evaluate it. There's not a single ancient scholar like who studies all of these things that does not believe Jesus was born. They all believe like that Jesus is a person born. So then the question you have to ask yourself is, was he a mighty God? Was he a prince of peace? Is he an everlasting father? Has he started a kingdom that knows no ends where his kingdom is of peace and of goodness? And the truth is, he is. He 100% is. 
the mighty God or the angel armies. Jesus hangs on the cross. And even the other people that put him there are saying, hey, how about you call an army of angels for yourself? And he is like the army of angels, the mighty God. And he says, no, I actually, I commit my spirit to the Father. He, he speaks over them that while this moment of incredible injustice, he says, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He's the child who grows up and defeats sin and death and evil and darkness through his own life. Hope arrives in the everlasting father that knows you. Those in pain, those feel abandoned in their pain. Christ is the one who who comes and identifies with all of your pain and all of your suffering. He's He's the one who brings peace. For all of you who are exhausted and weary and tired of wars and battles, a child is born to set the people free through his own death, through his own resurrection. Not only is Jesus a person that was real, that was born, he died and he rose again and he creates a whole new kingdom that's just for you, accessible. So will you prepare room for him? Will you recalibrate your whole life around that hope? Or will you just have him and a bunch of other things, like a weird mishmashed scrapbook or a collage, where you cut little bits out of the magazine that you like and you glue it, and then Jesus is one of them? It just doesn't really quite work that way. The people of Israel waited and waited. Like they waited and waited. Uh, From this point on, they were just uh, anxiously preparing, longing for that child to be born. It was through multiple invasions, multiple exiles, rebuilding a kingdom that was underneath somebody else's kingdom. And then when they were done building the walls, building the temples, they just wept because it wasn't as good as it was supposed to be. Sitting in a land political underlings, basically. It got darker and darker and darker. Uh, Wendell Berry, the poet from Kentucky, says that this is how he describes Christmas. He says it gets darker and darker and darker, then Jesus is born. It gets darker and darker, and then unto us a child is born, a son is given. Luke says it this way, While they were there, Mary and Joseph, time came for a baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him. How simple is that? That is like the the most simplest of explanations of what, what went down. Not just the physical realities of a child being born, but also the mysteries of that's the moment. The waiting and waiting and waiting and then and then Jesus was born. Luke just kind of describes it. It's like, yeah, time came. They had the baby, they wrapped the baby up. All hope breaking loose. Matthew says it this way, she gave birth to a son and he, Joseph, gave him the name Jesus. It's just so plain, you know. My great-grandmother, when a child would be born and my mom said this once, she was like, isn't he a miracle? Probably talking about me. And my great-grandmother said, nah, they have babies all the time. 
Go down to the hospital. They got 15 new ones right now, right? And there's something just beautiful and wonderful about that being true. Matthew says, she gave birth to a son. Happens all the time. Except this is the, the one named Jesus who takes away the sins of the world. It's the son given. John 1, 1 to 14 is a little more philosophical. Uh, John, son of Zebedee, got really philosophical. Like he spent a lot of time in Greece. He became really educated and cool. And, and he wrote the gospel last, probably in like 80 AD and as an old man, which is, so he had a lot you know, more time to think, how am I gonna describe this coolly? And he says this, the word was with God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Even in the most philosophical of senses, in the end, John just has to say, and then a child was born. The mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father became a baby and was born and dwelt among us. Flesh and blood. A child has been born to you. Will you receive him? Will you prepare room for him? And that's how your hopes have to be altered in this way. Can't be a new piece of furniture. Pushes out all the other pieces of furniture. This is our hope. What's, what it's like is uh, it's a never-ending, always constant, certain hope. My last dorky Hebrew thing that I'm going to say is that the whole poem section, you know, the flowery poem section, is all written as... Uh, basically a present past tense, meaning that it's happened and it is happening. It's not a prophecy of one day. It's saying, no, this has happened already. It's a certainty. It's an assured, constant thing. It's like right now, my kids, some of them are asking for Christmas presents, like Nora gave us a wish list the other day, and Truman gave us a wish list, and Maite gave us a wish list, and some of the things that they've asked for are already underneath the tree. Like, joke's on them, right? But they're gonna keep asking us for those things leading up to the day of Christmas. They're gonna keep being like, but dad, did you get me that thing? I really want that thing. The joke's on them. We bought that on Black Friday. It's been there the whole time. Just being ready to be opened. Like, that's the only thing they're waiting for. The gift's already there, right? And the same is true for our hope in Jesus. Our hope in Jesus is we are asking daily, constantly, God, give us a world full of peace. We wanna see and know your kingdom here, like filling this world. And Jesus is like, that gift's already under the tree. It's been bought for, it's paid for, it's secured. It's not gonna go away. It's all there. And then in a wonderful time in the future, we're gonna all open it together and experience that kind of joy forever. So let's pray. Jesus, we ask that uh, we would grow in trust and hope. We pray for your light to, to fill us. Uh, we pray for light to come in the darkness and the darkest parts of our city. We pray that we would see your peace and your joy, uh, that we would taste it, that we would know it. Uh, help us to, to hear the, the softness of your voice a child born to us, a son given to us. I pray for our hearts and our minds and our, our daily lives to receive you as king.
It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.